My name is Edron, one of the associate pastors here at the sanctuary, and I am grateful to have this opportunity to share with you this morning. Can you uh, help me thank our sister Tamia and our worship team and our band for leading us in worship today? Um, Tamia, you're such a gifted singer. Uh, you sang my sinuses down this morning. Uh, <laughs> it's all congested, and you brought all of them down, so thank you for your gift. Uh, we, we are in week four of a series that we're calling Beautiful Outlaw, based on the book uh, by the same title by uh, a guy named John Eldridge. Um, our, many of our life groups will be studying this book. Um, we have some available for sale at the Welcome Desk. We'd encourage you to grab a copy or grab it on Kindle or Amazon if you, uh, if you subscribe to those. Um, we would love for all of us to be reading the book, following along in the sermon series, and if you've missed any of the messages, we would encourage you to go to our podcast on iTunes. Just search for Sanctuary Covenant Church um, and follow along in that as well. The messages will in some ways uh, build on top of one another. Uh, we're going to jump right in this morning uh, because we also want to celebrate communion together before we head out this morning. And so I want to ask if you have Bibles uh, to turn to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, uh, beginning with verse 37, we're going to read there. We're going to read today from the New Living Translation, Luke chapter 11, uh, verses 37 through 54, actually. Here's what the word says. As Jesus was speaking, one of the Pharisees invited him home for a meal. So he went in and took his place at the table. His host was amazed to see that he sat down to eat without first performing the hand washing ceremony required by Jewish custom. Then the Lord said to him, you Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but you inside are inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Fools, didn't God make the inside as well as the outside? So clean the inside by giving gifts to the poor and you will be clean all over. What sorrow awaits you Pharisees, Jesus said, for you are careful to tithe even You are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the justice and the love of God. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. What sorrow awaits you, Pharisees, for you love to sit in the seats of honor in the synagogues and receive respectful greetings as you walk in the marketplaces. Yes, what sorrow awaits you, for you are like hidden graves in a field. People walk over them without knowing the corruption they are stepping on. Teacher, said an expert in religious law, you have insulted us too in what you just said. Yes, said Jesus. What sorrow also awaits you, in ex you experts in religious law, for you crush people with unbearable religious demands and you never lift a finger to ease the burden. What sorrow awaits you, for you build monuments for the prophets your own ancestors killed long ago. But in fact, you stand as witnesses who agree with what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets, and you join in their crime by building the monuments. This is what God in his wisdom said about you. I will send prophets and apostles to them, but they will kill some and persecute the others. As a result, this generation will be held responsible for the murder of all God's prophets from the creation of the world. From the murder of Abel to the murder of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, it will certainly be charged against this generation. What sorrow awaits you experts in the religious law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. 
You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering. As Jesus was leaving, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees became hostile and tried to provoke him with many questions. They wanted to trap him into saying something they could use against him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the gift of this time to be together. Would you guide us by your spirit? Let us hear from you. Lord, we love you and we want to honor you. We want to know and encounter you in this place in Jesus' name. Amen. According to the website, thekitchen.com, there are five simple ways that you can guarantee you will be the best dinner guest ever. The first is to be on time or 15 minutes late. You have to know your host. For some hosts, being on time is what they expect and need. And for others, being 15 minutes late is what they expect and need. And so the first way to be the best dinner guest ever is to be on time or be 15 minutes late. The second way is to bring a small gift. You should always ask, can I bring something to share? But also bring a gift, uh, perhaps a candle or a book you recently read or uh, a jar of honey or a bottle of wine. Bring a small gift to say thank you for the invitation. The third way to ensure that you will be the best dinner guest ever is to toast your host and keep an eye on his or her glass. And so offer a toast to say thank you for having this event. And throughout the night, their glass should never be empty. You should make sure they are having a good time as well. The fourth way to make sure you are the best dinner guest ever is to ignore your phone. Unless there's an emergency call from the babysitter or you are Googling some trivia for black card revoke, you should ignore your phone in order to be the best dinner guest ever. And finally, the fifth way to ensure that you will, uh, you will be the best dinner guest ever is to show the big three, show enthusiasm. Like, let people know you're grateful to be there. You're excited about being there. Show curiosity. Ask questions about your host, questions about their house, questions about the dinner, questions about the other dinner guests, and then show gratitude. Go out of your way to say thank you, thank you, and thank you again. And then after dinner, send a thank you note to say thank you for having me at your dinner party. If you want to be the, five be the best dinner guest ever, those are five simple things that you can do according to the website thekitchen.com. Friends, if this is the criteria for being the best dinner guest ever, our text today suggests that Jesus showed himself to be a pretty dreadful dinner guest. Jesus was disruptive. Jesus was disruptive because he was honest. Jesus was disruptively honest, as we'll talk about today. Jesus was even at times painfully honest. In our text today, we see all of that disruptive honesty coming to a head, and Jesus turns a dinner party into something very different. In the Gospel of Luke, we're able to see that many of the significant moments in Jesus' life and in the life of the early church took place around table. It took place at what we might consider today a dinner party. It was common in those days for Jewish teachers and popular rabbis to be invited to such gatherings so people could ask them serious questions. They could have discussion and even debate around issues of faith, life, and other wise topics. They did it for enrichment, but they also did it for sport. Many of the men of the day saw it as a chance to show off how smart they were and to pat themselves on the back. It's amazing how little some things change. 
These dinner parties, these gatherings were an actual vibe. They were something that people enjoyed. They looked forward to doing them every chance they could. And Luke highlights a number of examples in the life of Jesus where he is invited to a dinner party by friends and religious leaders of the day. In Luke chapter 5, verse 26, Levi, the tax collector, we know him as Matthew, hosts a large banquet for his tax collector friends, and he invites Jesus there so that they might dialogue with him. In Luke chapter 7, verse 26, Jesus is invited to a dinner party by a Pharisee, and Luke says that a sinful woman comes to the event, gets on her feet, and she anoints Jesus with a jar of perfume. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus is invited to the home of his friends Mary and Martha, and they get into a little situation, and Jesus has to settle a dispute about whether it is better to be or do. Jesus found himself always at these sorts of gatherings. And here in our text today, Luke chapter 11, we see Jesus being invited to a dinner party and disrupting it, setting the whole thing down because he chose to be honest. In this chapter, a Pharisee invites Jesus into his home, and Jesus comes in and immediately takes his seat at the dinner table. The host, being a good Jew, was surprised or perhaps amazed that Jesus sits to eat without taking part in the ceremonial hand-washing that was the Jewish tradition. The text doesn't record the actual host saying anything to Jesus at all. But Jesus understands his thoughts and sees his reaction, and Jesus immediately goes into it. In Luke chapter 39, without even hearing a word from the host, Jesus just says, You Pharisees are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and wickedness. Wait a minute, Jesus. Like, nobody's eaten yet. Like, (laughs) nobody's gotten started yet. Jesus just goes off at the beginning of the party. And he doesn't just go off on another guest. He goes off on the host. Jesus tries to set this brother straight in his own house. Verse 40, verse 41 says this, Jesus calls them fools, and he tells them that giving to the poor, not these superficial practices that they took so much pride in, that was at the heart of being clean all over. But Jesus is not done. Jesus lays out a series of condemnations that the Pharisees were guilty of. The sisters might say Jesus read them and Jesus had receipts. Verse 42, Jesus begins working down his list. He said, you Pharisees are concerned about hand washing. You give a tithe, even of small things, but you ignore justice and the love of God. Yes, you should tithe, but don't neglect the important things, the most important things. But Jesus was not done. He said, you are a secret defiler. You are like an unmarked grave that people walk in and defile themselves, and they don't even know it. That simply by being in your presence, people are being defiled. Jesus is speaking this way to the Pharisees, and there is another religious leader there, a brother who's a scribe, and he says, hold up, Jesus. When you insult them, you're insulting us as well. Jesus said, you're right. And begins to help this brother gain some clarity as well. Jesus says to them that they place unrealistic expectations on the people 
and do nothing to help lift the burdens of people. Jesus tells them they will be judged for the deaths of the prophets, even the prophets that died long before they were born. Jesus then tosses out what I consider to be the most overarching condemnation as he's reading everybody. The one that helps us to perhaps understand the fierceness of his condemnation. Jesus says in verse 52, what sorrow awaits you, experts of the law. Some, some translations say, woe to you, experts of the law, for you remove the key to knowledge from the people. You don't enter the kingdom yourselves, and you prevent others from entering the kingdom as well. Jesus condemns them because they are being a stumbling block. Jesus condemns them because they are getting in the way of people coming to know God. Jesus condemns them because they are giving God a bad name. And he condemns them because they don't love God and they don't want anybody else to love God either. Jesus has at this point blown up the dinner party. According to the text, not one person had taken a bite to eat. And I'm certain that there was somebody in that party who was like, Jesus, won't you just be quiet? I skipped lunch today. I worked through lunch, and I'm hungry, and here you are telling off people, and they haven't even served dinner yet. But there was probably somebody in there who was conflict-averse, who was like, shh, be quiet, Jesus. Stop messing up this party, Jesus. This is why we don't invite you anywhere, Jesus. Why didn't you just keep that to yourself, Jesus? And that's a good question. Why didn't Jesus keep this to himself? Why did Jesus choose to speak up? I believe Jesus spoke up because he was fueled by his love of God. Jesus spoke up because he was fueled by his love of God's people. Jesus spoke up because he was fueled by the mission of God. And in the course of helping God's people see God's love, Jesus modeled an uncanny propensity for keeping it real. Jesus knew that the truth shall set you free. Jesus knew that you can tell the truth and shame the devil. And the question for us to consider today's sanctuary is how comfortable are you when it comes to speaking as honestly as Jesus does here? In the book, Beautiful Outlaw, John Eldridge argues in a very provocative way that fear is at the root of our failure to keep it real. The reason we aren't honest with one another is because of fear. We fear tension. We fear backlash. We fear penalties. We fear being rejected. We fear that if I point out this issue, I'm somehow then responsible for fixing it. But here's the big idea of this entire message. Here's what you should write down if you're taking notes. If you love someone and you see something, you have to say something. If you love someone and you see something, you have to say something. This message today is a wake-up call to not just get us past our dishonesty, but even more, this message is entitled, is, is, is set to get us past our silence. Amen. Jesus came not just to deliver us from evil, but also to deliver us from silence. Silence is pretending that you don't see what threatens to destroy someone or something that you say you love. 
And how can you love something or how can you love someone, see them being threatened, and choose not to see? If you love someone and you see something, you have to say something. Fannie Lou Hamer is, for me, one of the most significant figures in all of American history. She was born in 1917 in Mississippi and spent much of her life as a sharecropper down in Sunflower County of Mississippi. She eventually began working to secure the right to vote for black Mississippians. She was so effective that she would go on to be an American voting rights activist, a civil rights leader, and a philanthropist. At the core of her life and her work was her faith in Jesus. She spoke about it all the time, and she would often kick off protests and actions by bellowing out gospel hymns. Fannie Lou Hamer, I believe we have a picture of her on the screen if we could get that up. She was a strong, powerful black woman. It was undeniable that her fight for liberation, her fight for the enfranchisement of poor people everywhere, flowed out of her faith in Jesus. Because of her belief in Jesus, Fannie Lou Hamer refused to be quiet or to be coy when it came to issues of justice. Some people actually believe that the place of a woman is to be silent, seen, but unheard. But Fannie Lou Hamer never got that memo. And if she had heard it, she would not have cared. And so in 1963, while going about the work of registering voters in Mississippi, Fannie Lou Hamer was arrested and nearly beaten to death at the hands of police. She never actually recovered from those injuries. She would die in 1977 from complicated complications that were traced back to that injury, those injuries. But in 1964, just a year after being beaten, Fannie Lou Hamer found herself at the Democratic National Party convention in Atlantic City. It was an election year. The Democrats were trying to find their, their team to run as president. Lyndon B. Johnson was finishing out the term of JFK after he was assassinated, and he was preparing to run for a full term. His running mate was a Minnesotan by the name of Hubert Humphreys, and they wanted to represent the Democrats in the next election. The party from Mississippi, the Democratic delegation, was a whites-only delegation. There were no black people in the party, even though the state of Mississippi was almost 50% black. Blacks were not allowed to register. They were not allowed to participate in the vote. And Fannie Lou Hamer had an issue with that. And so she was instrumental in the formation of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, the FDP, which went to Atlantic City and demanded a hearing so that they could be a part of the, conven the convention and represent those citizens of Mississippi who have been denied the right to vote solely because of their black skin. Hubert Humphrey, along with others, went to Hamer, and they asked her to sit down and be quiet. They said, we are easily going to win this election, but we can't have this, this fighting amongst ourselves. They told her, if you would sit down and be quiet, next time around, your people will have a voice. Hubert Humphrey did not know Fannie Lou Hamer very well. She did not sit down. She did not shut up. In fact, there at that convention, 
Fannie Lou Hamer did some of her most far-reaching work of honest disruption. And the entire nation witnessed it, even the man in the White House. Let's take a look at this video. The testimony before the Prudentials Committee, the FDP had a lineup of very different people. They had Rita Schwerner, the widow of Mickey, who had been killed in Neshoba County. They had Martin Luther King. Everybody knew King. The seating of the delegation from the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party has political and moral significance far beyond the borders of Mississippi or the halls of this convention. But the highlight of the testimony was that of Fannie Lou Hamer. The sharecropper who had been evicted from her plantation had come to symbolize the Mississippi movement. Mr. Chairman, and to the Credentials Committee. It was the 31st of August in 1962 that 18 of us traveled 26 miles to the county courthouse in Indianola to try to register to become first-class citizens. We was met in Indianola with, by policemen. The president, Lyndon Johnson, he's not afraid of Martin Luther King's testimony, he's afraid of Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony. And so he decides that the country should not see her testify live. Johnson is in the White House, and he convened an impromptu press conference. We'll return to this scene in Atlantic City, but now we switch to the White House and NBC's Robert Gorelsky. Now, ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. On this day, nine months ago, he did it knowing that they would break away, thinking he might announce who his choice of vice president was going to be. Instead, he gets up there and he announces, get this, he announces that it's nine months to the day since, since Governor Connolly, who was there, was shot along with President Kennedy. So he announced a nine-month anniversary. Everybody's scratching their heads. Thank you very much. And then he leaves. And by that time, Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony was over. However, it backfired on Johnson because it became a story that she had been taken off television and in the news that night and for days afterwards, they replayed her testimony. I was carried to the county jail and put in the booking room. They left some of the people in the booking room and began to place us in sales. She had Mississippi in her bones. Martin Luther King or the SNCC field secretaries, uh, they couldn't do what Fannie Lou Hamer did. They couldn't be a sharecropper and express what it meant, right? And that's what Fannie Lou Hamer um, did. And it wasn't too long before three white men came to my cell. One of these men was the State Highway Patrol. He said, we're going to make you wish you were dead. Fannie Lou Hamer spoke for a few more moments. And at the end of her testimony, with tears in her eyes, she posed a series of questions in that room to a nation looking on by television. And she said, is this America, the land of the free and the home of the braves? Is this America where we have to sleep with our telephones off the hook 
because our lives are being threatened daily simply because we want to live as decent human beings in America. Is this America? And it's amazing how her words still ring out to us even today. Against the odds, Fannie Lou Hamer spoke up, organized, risked her life, and she suffered tremendously because of it, but she did it willingly because she knew that the price of silence was far more than the price of being honest. She did it because she loved Jesus. She did it because she loved America. She did it because she knew that if you love someone and you see something, you have to say something. Fannie Lou Hamer was a courageous woman, but honest disruption did not start with Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer had a model, and that model's name was Jesus. Jesus honestly disrupted the wrong, the injustice, the suffering, the chaos going on around him wherever he went. And just like we see in Jesus, and just like what we saw in Fannie Lou Hamer, you and I today, brothers and sisters, are still called to be honest disruptors. We are called to be ourselves honest disruptors wherever we find ourselves. So perhaps you're here today and you have no idea what it means to be an honest disruptor. You don't know what this looks like in your life. Here's, here's what the scriptures teach us, that when we place our faith in Jesus, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in us and God will begin to open our eyes to see the truths that we could not see on our own. We will see truths about the places that we spend our time. We will see truths about ourselves. We will even see truths about the folks that we come into contact with. And when we see something, if we love that person, if we love that institution, if we love this nation, we are called to say something. So if you're here today and you're a parent, I want to speak directly to you and say that Jesus wants to speak through you to your children. Don't stop being honest with your kids. No matter how much they get tired of hearing you, be honest with them. Your kids need your disruptive honesty. No matter how cute they are, you have to be honest with your kids. You can be friends with your kids when they're 30 or 40, but right now they need you to be their parent. Perhaps you're here today and you're married or in a relationship. Jesus wants to speak through you to your partner. My wife has the spiritual gift of disruptive honesty when it comes to my life. She sees stuff before I do. She sees stuff that I wouldn't otherwise see. And she is not afraid to say what she sees because she loves me. And so a part of my growth as a husband and a follower of Jesus is to trust that my wife, my sister in Christ, is a primary voice that God is using to grow me and mature me. Let's keep that part off the podcast, please. Um, perhaps you're here today and you're not in any sort of relationship, but you have a number of trusted friends. And this applies to both couples and singles, you need a crew around you who will be disruptively honest with you. You've got some friends around you, I'm sure, and you should be asking yourself on the regular, does God speak to me through these folks that I've gathered around me? 
Are my friends rooted in Christ? And would they be honest with me about who I am and where I am in Jesus? You need those kinds of friends in your life. And you need to be that kind of friend to someone else. And this is not just for the older folks in the room. This is true for our students, our Mosaic Age students, and even our Royal Hood students. If you see a friend who is straying away, beginning to change, and you see bad stuff just coming towards them because of the changes in their life, be willing to say something. Because even as a high school student, if you love someone and you see something, God wants you to say something as well. And even if we can't find this anywhere else out in the world, shouldn't we be able to find this kind of honesty in the church? That's what it means for us to be the body of Christ together. It means as we build relationships within our church, one gift that we owe one another is our honesty. We need each other's honesty. We won't grow spiritually without this kind of honesty. But if we are able to take the chance, be courageous enough to be honest with each other in this way, we will see transformation. We will see growth. We will see healing. We will see people being set free from from different things that have kept them trapped for generations. We will see deeper friendships within our church. We will see stronger marriages within our church. We will see our children grow strong and wise if we choose to be honest with one another. Not only will our church be different, this community will be different if we choose to be disruptively honest. And it begins by each one of us saying yes to this sort of disruptive honesty. Now I have to give a warning before I close. This is not an excuse to go out and rip everyone to shreds. That's not what I'm saying. For some of you, you don't even need to hear this message. You already share everything you have on your mind too frequently. You need to pull it back a little bit. But for the rest of you who struggle... Being honest with people, this is an encouragement to you to know that God speaks to you and through you, and the people around you need you to be honest. So how can I know whether to share or not to share? Three simple questions you can ask yourself. One, is this sharing fueled by my love of God? Is this sharing fueled by my love of the other person? And is this sharing fueled by the mission of God? Is is this in any way going to help the mission of God come to bear? And if it's not, perhaps you hold on to it. But if it is, God is encouraging us today to be honest in the same way that Jesus is an honest disruptor. I want to invite our worship team and our prayer team back up. Pastor Mike, I want to invite you up as well as we prepare for communion today. We share that Many times in the New Testament, we gathered around table, and there at table, there was discussion and debate. But today, we gather around another table, the communion table, and we believe God wants to share some truth with us through this experience as well.